0: Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, and the word made flesh. Amen. The first reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. I invite you now to listen for the word of the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food. And the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat or what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue our summer sermon series on the prophets this morning by turning to the prophet Hosea second lesson comes from Hosea chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. A quick note about this text. The word Ephraim occurs a couple of times. This is uh, particular to the prophet Hosea and seems to be a synonym for Israel. Uh, Hebrew poetry loves parallelism so it's always looking for synonyms. And Jacob is often used as a synonym for Israel but in Hosea he uses the term Ephraim. So when you hear that term think Israel. I invite you now to listen once again for the word of the Lord. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to turn to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All of us have certain images in our heads of who God is and what God is like. These may be images that we consciously form and intentionally nurture as a faith resource, Or they may be images that we hold unconsciously, derived whether we know it or not from our past experiences, either in church or in some other meaningful aspect of our lives. Some of these images are useful because they draw us into deeper relationship with God based on love and trust. For instance, I often think of my memories of my grandmother and how I used to lay on the floor of her living room in front of her rocking chair and verbally process my complicated life for hours on end. And my grandmother would patiently listen and offer wise counsel. And to this day, when I think about listening for God's grace or God's wise counsel, I often imagine myself back in that living room again beneath my grandmother's rocking chair. Other images of God, however, are harmful and may in fact inhibit our ability to draw closer to God in trust and love. For instance, if we grew up with a distant or negligent father, those memories might flood our minds when we think about God the Father, leading us to think of God as cold or indifferent. A teacher we could never please or an ex-partner who mistreated us Could cloud our understanding of God as harsh or unfair, and however theologically inaccurate these images of God might be, they can still have an outsized influence on who we understand God to be simply by virtue of their vivid familiarity in our minds. For better or worse, the images of God that we have in our heads inform our lives of faith, because these are the images that we carry with us when we face an identity crisis or when we undergo a challenging season in life, and we need to lean on our faith to see us through a difficult time. And in any season of life, if we want to grow closer to God, then we need to make sure our images of God are edifying and true. Images of God's parental love govern the prophet Hosea's prophetic speech. God is the one who birthed and nurtured Israel, guiding the people into maturity, into growing up. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, God says through the prophet. From Hosea's vantage point, the exodus from Egypt represented Israel's birth, and the subsequent desert wanderings represented Israel's childhood, during which God cared for the people with tender attentiveness. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. God provided for Israel in a way that a parent nurtures a newborn into a toddler, I was to them like those who lift infants to the cheek. I bent down and I fed them. God declares, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. These are good and beautiful images of God. The photo on the screen is one of my favorite photos of my son, James. It was taken before he was able to walk, but at that stage when everything in him wants to stand on his own two feet. We were on the beach in this photo, and he was all over the place as I held his hands above his head, providing the balance that he needed to get acquainted with standing upright. You can see the joy on his face as he begins to feel like he can move, like he he can do what he was made to do. And I often thought about our passage from Hosea this morning as James was learning to walk. The love that I felt for James as he discovered what it's like to put one foot in front of the other gave me a new glimpse into the parental love that God has for us. And I thought if God's love for me is anything like the love that I feel for James during those wobbly steps on the beach, then that's an image I can lean into when I think about God's love. And according to Hosea, God's love is just that, like the love of a parent teaching a child to walk. There's a reason that the scriptures refer to God with parental language from start to finish. God, the father, of course, is a governing image in scripture. And in many instances, scripture uses maternal images to refer to God as well. In this text, God lifts a child to the cheek, providing the kind of nurturing affection that children need to know that they're loved, that they belong, and that they're safe. These compelling images of God's love paint a beautiful picture of those most idyllic moments of the love between a parent and a child. They're the kind of images we should nurture and, and draw on when we sit down to pray or when we wonder where God is in our lives and in the world. They're the kind of images that convey what God is really like. For indeed, we are children of God, and God loves us with perfect familial love and care. The problem with children, of course, is that as soon as they learn to walk, they also learn to wander off. They learn to go off on their own way, and it may not be the way their parents want them to go. In fact, as children rebel against their parents, they sometimes deliberately do exactly the thing their parents don't want them to do. And so it was with Israel, which became increasingly prone to wandering away from the God who had freed them from Egypt led them through the wilderness, and established them in the Promised Land. Though God had provided everything they could have ever needed, yet the people, instead of loving God back, turned their back on God and chased after idols. The more I called them, the more they went away from me, God laments in our text. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. The Baals were the gods of the Canaanite pantheon, notoriously seductive to Israel in the days of the prophets. Idolatry is the central preoccupation throughout the book of Hosea. The prophet likens the worship of other gods to the betrayal of adultery within a marriage. And as Hosea makes clear, it breaks God's heart God loves the people with familial love, and yet the people betray God as though intent on tearing a family apart. Hosea was active during the 8th century BC in the northern kingdom of Israel, and during this period, the Assyrian Empire had risen to prominence in the region. And so the kings of Israel sought to form alliances with other nations in order to form a kind of buffer to repel Assyria's advancing armies. Israel sought an ally in Egypt, for example, the very nation from which God had freed them from slavery. Israel also sought to make a deal with Assyria itself, offering to pay a tribute in exchange for assurances that they wouldn't be conquered. But Assyria required its vassals to recognize and worship its own supreme God. Both Egypt and Assyria are mentioned in our text today, and in each case, Israel's fear and uncertainty about its future caused it to turn away from God when they should have turned toward God. Their fear of what was to come caused them to look for other kinds of security, even from among those from whom God had freed them even from among the gods of the other nations. This is why there's such a sense of betrayal from God in our text today. Even though God had always taken care of this people in their insecurity and in their angst, they've gone looking for relief and safety in all the wrong places. Simply put, the people don't trust the God who loves them. And so Hosea was sent to Israel, not so much to announce pending doom, but rather to call for reconciliation with God and a renewal of the familial covenant. God is hurt and angry by the ways that the people have wandered off after other gods. God feels forgotten and betrayed. And yet God stands ready to forgive. Our text concludes How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not come in wrath. Despite Israel's bitter betrayal, God is faithful still. One of the remarkable features about Hosea's prophetic material is the deep divine pathos that it conveys. All throughout the book, and especially in today's passage, God vacillates between nostalgic love and fiery wrath. Ultimately, God's hope for reunion is stronger than God's jealousy. But still, God's emotions are fierce and insistent in this text. Now, it's easy for us, right, to see how images of God's nostalgic love are useful and edifying and meaningful for our faith. But it's much harder to consider what to do with the images of God's anger and judgment. How should we understand these texts in which God vows to punish the people's waywardness? What images of God should these texts evoke in our minds? And are such images helpful or harmful to our understanding of God? Well, Christians have wrestled with the whole idea of God's emotions for centuries. There's a doctrine about it, the doctrine of divine impassibility which has a long history in Christian thought and asserts that God cannot feel emotion because God is thoroughly unchanging or immutable. Thus, insofar as emotion can be attributed to God, it must be done such that that emotion doesn't change, that is, doesn't increase or decrease. In our own book of Confessions, we find this view, articulated in the Westminster confession of faith, which you can see on the screen. It reads in part, there is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. There it is. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most absolute. According to this view, Biblical texts, like those in Hosea, simply anthropomorphize God. That is, they ascribe human attributes to God in order to convey the severity of the message. God gets angry and then cools off. God threatens destruction and then is overwhelmed with compassion and relents. But in the end, it's all just a figure of speech. Now, there is indeed a danger to... Creating God in our image when we describe God in human terms and for this reason this doctrine of God's Impassibility has a certain theological utility It's useful for instance when we affirm that God is love To also affirm that God's love doesn't change, right? It's immutable God's love is not fickle. It must not be earned and it cannot be lost God's love is, as the scriptural refrain says, it endures forever. God's love is unchanging. It is immutable. Still, though, our human emotions and even our changing emotions, a sign of our imperfection such that they're not suitable to describe God in any meaningful way, Is it a sign of our finitude that in moments of deep pathos, our emotions can be all over the place? And I wonder if thinking about God as immense, eternal, and incomprehensible really helps us to love God more than thinking about God as someone who loves us like a fierce, devoted parent, with all the weighty emotions that sometimes come with that kind of love. Which is the better image of God? When I was in eighth grade, I hated my bus driver. One day on my way to school, she made me sit in the front of the bus with sixth graders, three to a seat, because I was too loud. Imagine that. So I vowed to walk home after school rather than ride my bus. And that's what I did, the three-mile journey home took me at least half an hour, an hour and a half, rather. And as I approached home, I was surprised to see my dad's car in the driveway, home early from work. And there was a police car in front of my house. And as I walked onto my front yard, my parents came running out of the house, tearfully embracing me and yelling at me all at once, angry that I had wandered off but even more relieved and thankful that I was home. They'd had no idea where I was, but now I was found. And their response to my arrival was an outpouring of both anger and love, a complicated mix of pathos that corresponded to my foolish wandering journey home. Though they were angry, I remember feeling loved, and their reaction, I think, in a somewhat counterintuitive way perhaps, was somehow divine. Now, no image for God is perfect, of course, or all-encompassing. Surely if my mother had God's all-knowing wisdom and had known I was walking home, she wouldn't have been so upset. At least she would have been more at ease knowing where I was. But still, according to Scripture, and especially according to Hosea, God's love for us has a similar sort of ferocity, a similar sort of intensity. God's steadfast love endures forever. Sometimes endures is what God's love has to undergo as we wander to the right and to the left. God's love is a love that can be betrayed. It's the love of true relationship. But even when we wander, God is faithful still. So I wonder what images inform how you understand God. Are your images so impassable, so void of emotion and pathos that God is little more to you than a distant ruler or a detached force, an impersonal higher power, the universe. Or do your images of God convey the resolute, tender love of a parent for a child? Do your images of God convey the suffering love and open arms of Jesus Christ on the cross? Hosea, with all his divine pathos, has a lot to teach us about just how much God loves us. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.